If you're vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to mutate menacingly, and here's why. In this episode, we're finding answers to how do we create a horrific pursuer for our party from scratch? And is there a way to cater to each party member as we build tension and challenges with our monster? And is there a reliable process we can use to get more mileage from our monstrosities? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. We're talking about... Monsters, and we've done monster episodes before, but this is taking a little bit of a step back. What is a monster? (laughs) Right. Well, I think it is important to discuss this and to gain a little bit of clarity between the two of us, and of course, you as well, as you're listening to this. It kind of came to us at some point recently that, you know, a villain. A villain is just such a great catalyst for character change. You know, a villain that is thinking, feeling, conniving, plotting against your players. The kind of situations that arrive from running a villain really allow you to muck around in that character change. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a much more emotional, visceral sense of of who these characters are and how they're responding. A character can overcome what's holding them back in their journey a lot better with a villain. And a character can actually hash it out. They can debate the finer points of morality or whatever it is that they're overcoming. Exactly, because there's more nuance in the plan. When it comes to a monster, a monster is such a great opportunity to highlight the heroes and their abilities. It allows them to react and take control of the situation and be heroes. Monsters are way more physical. Like, it's it's letting the characters shine, like you said, as actual heroes. The barbarian with a massive maul gets to smash a monster's head in with it. I guess, in essence, what we're saying is villains have this side of them that you can use a villain to play within the realm of all of the intellectual stats and abilities of the characters at the table, whereas monsters are great for the physical side. How do we engage dexterity, strength, all of these physical attributes that really matter to some of those characters and allow them to beat the living shit out of something? (laughs) And also to challenge any of the characters' fears, that's important because monsters kind of come with horror baked in. Right. That's another distinction I think, is that villains belong in mysteries and thrillers and actions and war stories and westerns, but a monster could be molded to fit into those genres, but they they come with horror. They are horror. Yeah. Without horror, it's not a monster. They thrive within that action-horror hybrid space. With that out of the way, though, let's talk about the actual challenge that we're facing here, is that Creating custom monsters takes a hell of a lot of time. It's a very time-consuming endeavor. It feels like it takes a lot of specialized knowledge about the system that you're running. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I haven't seen a lot of great paths guiding me towards creating a custom monster before. (laughs) Right. There's not a lot of guidance out there. I mean, there's depending on which system you're running, like, for instance, D&D, has a section in the back that tells you how to build a monster. And it's it's pretty good. But the one thing is that it doesn't necessarily tell you how to run your custom monster. You can make some stats for it and then just drop it on the table, and hopefully it goes well for you. We all know that more often than not, <laughs> if the only thing you're doing with your monster is a single fight, it's not really going to pack the punch that you want it to. And we've spent plenty of time taking stats reskinning other monsters to kind of surprise the party because the party's seen this already or they've read through the monster manual or something like that. What this does, this approach, is it says it doesn't matter really what the stat block is. It's how we're addressing 
and using the monster to its maximum potential with our party. And the honest truth is that we've used stat blocks very, very little. In fact, I've never had to dive into the math necessarily. Yeah, Travis and I's evolution of GMing has been relying less and less on the actual math or specific rules of whatever system we're using, and more and more on the the moment that you want to hit with your story, rather than specifically how much damage this thing can do and what its limitations are going to be. And this has always been reflected with the players, too, because typically I don't experience players saying, you know what really worked well? The AC of that monster. <laughs> They usually go, holy shit, when you introduced that, that was awesome. Yeah. That was scary. That was terrifying. I was on the edge of my seat. That was an epic fight because I got a chance to run up its back and leap down with my axe and split it right between the eyes. (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot of splitting in twain going on. So the solution to this is we try to find ways to highlight the strengths of our player characters at the table in the monster that we're running give them something to do. We then consider what we could use to inspire our monster that fits our world, our story, and any other concepts that have kind of bubbled up when thinking about this beast. And then, of course, we use the horror steps that we've talked about in previous episodes to plan out scenes that really lead up to an incredible monster encounter. This approach always keeps the player characters forefront in our minds, which is something that We often forget to do, but like that constant reminder is crucial. I like this because it just makes the monster fit more naturally into place. Within your story, yeah. Right. Like I never run a thing and then I go, oh, well, I found this that works in the monster manual. So I'm going to put it in this room and I have no (laughs) idea why it's there, but I guess they need something to fight. It's got some wild abilities that would fundamentally alter the whole state of your world, (laughs) but it's just hanging out (laughs) in a dungeon room eating cockroaches, I guess. I don't know. So starting from scratch, even though it seems like it's going to take longer, typically yields way better results and isn't as long when we find some great inspiration that starts the wheels turning. So let's talk about our characters real quick before we go any farther. And this is coming from the adventure that we've been creating throughout this season. So we want to push their physical capabilities to their breaking point and make sure that each character's strength gets to shine a little bit. So we have just a few characters to talk about. We've got Squib, the chaotic magician. We've got Weld, who is a practical technician. And Eden, who is a frontline defender. And we chose these, or I should say our wonderful patrons, helped us build these characters specifically to represent the typical party structure. You know, you usually have a frontliner. You usually have, you know, somebody who's slinging spells from the back. And then you usually have one of those, uh, you know, skill monkey kind of characters. Yeah. So just in a kind of general way, I'm imagining a final fight in which Squib might have some magical opportunity to hamper the monster. Weld might be sitting in a corner trying to figure out how to exploit its weakness and Eden bashing at it with a shield and trying to draw its attention. Right. I mean, that's a cool fight already to me. But in order to lead up to that fight, to make this monster truly horrific, we need to follow some very important horror steps. And like I said, we've talked about this in the past, but just as a quick recap, the horror steps are all about building tension. And building tension to lead up to the reveal of the monster is an absolute must when it comes to any monster in TTRPGs. Regardless of the game that you're playing, dropping a mini onto the table immediately with no lead-up forces the players to try to suss out what the monster is and its strengths and weaknesses and all of this while completely removing the tension. It just turns it into a tactical encounter rather than having any kind of story or depth to it. Right. Giving players stages to experience tension building all the way throughout, and prepping some ideas about how to make them worry about an encounter as they get closer and closer makes gameplay so much better. So in the sloppiest, loosest way to explain it, you start by establishing what normal you, is. Yeah. Can you not get so sloppy? No, nah, I gotta. Back the slop off. <laughs> 
fine. Step one, you establish what normal is for the world and the characters. That's going to allow some contrast later on. And it really allows to build up to that oh shit moment. That's what we're trying to do. Then you got to build some unease, that sense that something isn't quite right, but I have no idea what it is. The pringly feeling on your skin. Right. And then you get into dread, which is where you start to find physical evidence of something truly bad. And then terror, where something is right around the corner and it's about to consume you. And then that leads to the monster reveal, which is horror. And if you jump right to that horror, that's where you lose all of that tension. Yeah. So if you want more information on this, you can listen to the series of episodes called The Bones of Horror. Uh, that was done quite some time ago, but it was a three-part episode. But first, wow, this is a lot of firsts. There's a lot of things <laughs> we got to discuss and lead up to, isn't it? But first, we're going to go to the Sanctum of Scholars, where we're going to discuss some inspiration for these monsters. Step into the Sanctum of Scholars, where records of scientific discoveries and natural wonders awaken worlds of possibilities. All right, so we're building a monster for our adventure, Corruption in the Temple of Trials, that we've been going through in this season. As a quick recap, we have an ancient temple that was filled with once deadly trials of mind and body. We have a monster that has been trapped in there for decades, if not centuries. The main villain's actions have freed this monster. It's now predatory and hungry. And in our session zero, the inspirations of Lord of the Rings Balrog and Alien came up as kind of things to think about as we design this monster. Right. And we also wanted something that would essentially pursue our characters through the Temple of Trials because you can take all the time you want and it can be a real lackadaisical walk through these deadly trials unless you have something that's actively pushing you through them. Absolutely. They're, the monster's going to act as a ticking clock, right? Exactly. So some of the stuff that comes up is like that stages of evolution in Alien as part of that. Just a metamorphosis is always a terrifying idea. Because you don't know what's coming next. Right. Even if the party gets a glimpse and firsthand experience with the monster, it's going to change and evolve by the time they see it next. And that is almost in and of itself another ticking clock. Like, we have to stop this before it keeps getting worse. Yeah. How big does it get? I think this is how movies like Mega Shark was born <laughs> with that with that simple question. Right. Talking about movies with absolutely zero <laughs> horror in them. We want a monster that's able to live without food for a very long time, like it's been trapped down here. And part of an inspiration that came up in a previous episode for the healing nature of the waters that the community on the surface is all about is slugs and snails. So we're going to have to figure out a way to wrap all of these up. And as per usual, you've done a bunch of deep dives, Jordan. <laughs> I like animals. So I'm going to talk about <laughs> some of those. Wait, wait, let me try that introduction again. That wasn't a good pitch, was it? Yeah, no, it could use some jazz. I'm going to tell you about a specific slice of the ocean and the terrifying interplay between a few species. I'm absolutely unhinged excited for this because <laughs> all of the worst stuff comes from the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. So first, let me introduce you to a beast known as the Blue Sea Dragon. Some call it the Blue Angel. Others refer to it as the Deadly Dragon Slug. Wow. <laughs> and this isn't fantasy. No, that's right. We're already talking about dragons and all kinds of stuff. Science nerds call it the Glaucus Atlanticus, a shellless gastropod mollusk, a type of nudibranch. This is so on point for what we wanted. We wanted, you know, sea slug, nudibranch. You know, we talked previously about how beautiful and crazy they look and they are. It's it's so perfect for this story. Exactly. And so starting off with how wild these things look, imagine a blue lizard with three sets of legs 
each set getting progressively smaller the farther back on the body you get. Okay. Its body looks like a bright blue sparkling fishing lure with two menacingly dark blue stripes running down its back. And each of its limbs, which you might be imagining little lizard fingers, is instead tipped with a fan of tentacles, each one fading into a black tip. Okay, that was the one I was like, okay, we're pretty, you know, pretty standard here. But as soon as you end each limb with tentacles, yeah, that is some eldritch horror shit. We're getting weird. And what I want to get to is its predatory behavior. That's the awesome part. But first, let me introduce you to our second player, the Portuguese Man of War. Now, I've heard of these before. I've seen photos of them. They are wild looking. Like, they are terrifying. Like, you just look at it, and a part of your lizard brain just goes, <laughs> hell no, do not touch that thing. Right, because it's kind of a unique creature. It floats on top of the surface of the water, and the top half looks like a ship. That's why it's got its name. And the bottom half is dangling, terrifying tentacles. And, like, not just normal tentacles, but, like, colorful, crazy, yeah. twisty just hideous looking tentacles that you know are going to mess you up. <laughs> they're super long and just, yeah, they're, they're icky to humans. I'll say that for sure. Another thing you may have heard about these creatures is that they're highly venomous. And it's what you'd expect. Once it gets a fish with its tentacle venom, it drags them up to get digested. And I say get digested instead of eaten or consumed by a mouth because... They get way weirder than that. This creature is colonial, meaning it is made up of a collection of specialized zooids, which are smaller creatures that make up a whole. What? There's seven different types of zooid that comprise this single being, uh, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. This, this scientific terms, I'm sure, but... I mean, I had always just kind of assumed that a jellyfish was one... <laughs> That's uh, one thing. I just, I hate it. It's so bad. Yeah. Somehow they all come from the same egg. So they're like, they're one what? but many. I don't fully. <laughs> this creature functions like venom. Yeah, exactly. I was like just a thinking symbiote. <laughs> we are many. <laughs> Dear God. So we got some terror already. And its venom is very deadly to fish and can be fatal for humans. And before I tell you how these two creatures relate, I'm going to keep on going with another creature. We've got the Turritopsis dornai. And this one's just a little feller. Fully grown, it's only about 4.5 millimeters across. Smaller than a pinky nail. If experience has taught me anything, it's the smaller ones that are worse. <laughs> I'm expecting this thing to have like missiles or... Mm -hmm. Undersea missiles yeah. makes perfect sense, Travis. <laughs> well, I'm talking about submarines. There's only one way that you can get a step up from a Portuguese man of war <laughs> that kills anything that touches it. So this creature has a bright red stomach visible in the middle of its transparent bell, and its edges are lined with up to 90 white tentacles. The sea has a theme, and it's tentacles. <laughs> In response to physical damage or even starvation, they take a leap back in their development process. They turn back into a polyp. What? At first glance, humanity thought that it was immortality. We, we thought, well, this thing just lives forever. But <laughs> what they actually do is turn back into a polyp colony that eventually buds and releases medusae that are genetically identical to that original injured adult. They kind of do this rebirth process. So it's like me turning back into a baby and getting rid of all my <laughs> scars and... I think into a pile of babies, actually. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's a whole different horror that we've invented. We'll have to revisit that one in the later date. And this creature is commonly known as the immortal jellyfish, if you've heard of that before. Finally, we have the man -o war fish. Now, it's named because of its relationship with the Portuguese man-o-war. But just looking at it, it's a fish. It doesn't have any wild tentacles. It doesn't have any super special attacks or poisons or venoms. But nonetheless, 
it manages to consume the Portuguese man of war what? while drifting around in its tentacles. I assumed that when you said it was the man of war fish, as it was just the thing that the man of war ate. <laughs> right. You think the man of war is the predator here. The fish is the predator. Yeah. And you might think that the fish must have some kind of like shell that keeps it immune to the venom or some kind of special mucus, but it's actually just got really high dexterity. Really? It's constantly dodging the tentacles as it's eating the stuff that's not able to give it a venomous dose of death. What the hell? <laughs> that is a death wish. There's got to be easier things to eat. Right? You've got a whole ocean. You want to eat the thing that is eating everything else. Yeah. I hope that fish's friends are trying to pull it back. Like, I'm going to dance with the devil. <laughs> I'm going in. There goes Jerry. I just, I think he's got some issues. Yeah. So then we go back to that blue sea dragon that I started with. It is also a predator of the man of war. How in the hell did we get to this place where the man of war is the defender? Yeah, it's at the bottom of this specific food chain. What the shit? <laughs> but the blue sea dragon is actually immune to the man of war's venom. And remember how I mentioned those tentacle fingers with the black tips? Right. Those actually concentrate the man of war's venom that this creature consumes and stores in those, those tentacle tips. Holy shit. Okay, so we got a tiny sea dragon that's storing manowar venom inside its fleshy uh, tentacle fingers. Exactly, but not just storing, but concentrating. Uh. <laughs> like, it, it does a better job at stinging than the manowar does with its own venom. And the manowar already kills people. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Can we just nuke the seas yet? Like, can we just get rid of them? Great approach to nature, Travis. <laughs> Nuke the seas is the new slogan. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly environmentally friendly, but... <laughs> the whales will be fine. <laughs> I mean, there's so many takeaways from this. The slugs, we've got you know, a whole ecosystem that we can mess with our party with, with just these few bits of inspiration. Yeah, and I like how it, it does create kind of a logical ecosystem in this dungeon. Because you've got the original healing slugs that are just little regular looking slugs. You've got a swarm of some kind or some creature that's tentacles dangle from the ceiling to pick up and consume those slugs. You've got the actual monster that is going to consume the tentacles to condense and use that venom. Right, and then... This lets us foreshadow the monster's danger by having a weaker form of its attacks on display. Like we can watch this thing. We can watch this whole ecosystem play out for our characters and just watch it continually grow and get worse. Yeah, I'm really stoked for this. Yeah. So I think we should get right into Lamashtu's breeding pit and start building. Oh, Watch where you step in Lamashtu's breeding pit, where the most vile and deadly creatures are birds and unleashed upon doomed adventurers. So something that I'm really excited about is that while we were noodling around on this episode, you know what Jordan and I realized? We realized that we could map the stages of this thing's life cycle onto those stages of horror. Remember the stages? So in essence, this is kind of the same thing that the alien did in the movie Alien. Each stage of the monster became something completely different. So if we go back to Alien, for instance, they started as an egg, which is that unease Stage. Yeah, this feels a little weird and wrong. To the face hugger, which is definitely <laughs> adding some dread. To the chest burster, which is absolutely terror. That is, you know, there's something that just killed, ripped out of someone's chest and is now running free on the ship. Yeah. To finally the alien, which is that horror stage. We've revealed the final form of the monster. So it maps really, really effortlessly on top. But there's another really cool thing. So if a monster 
versus, say, like the villain, like we chatted about in the very beginning, is really all about highlighting and showcasing a party's stats and abilities and, you know, giving them something physical to overcome. There's a few ways of escalating the physical challenges that a party might typically encounter that maps on to those stages really well as well. As far as like physical challenges go, you know, often you could have, say, puzzles or like little challenges to try to overcome, but not a lot of pressure to do them. You have a little bit more time to think. You're learning the rules of this new world a little bit. So that's the low tension. That's unease. Then you've got dread, which is stealth. You know, it increases that tension a little bit. Right. If you have a stealth-based challenge, that inherently comes with something dangerous that's not right in front of you. Right. Then you've got a chase, which is the terror stage. This thing is getting close to us. Yeah. If you stop moving, it will absolutely get you. And then you finally have combat or that horror stage. So we've got these like, we've got a life cycle. We've got uh, increasing physical challenges, both which map perfectly onto the horror stages that we've talked about in the past. Right. You've kind of got a storytelling angle, a gameplay angle, and a monster evolution angle. So if you wanted to know what this room that we do our podcast from looks like when the two of us are just going, holy shit, this is perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's quite an exciting time. We got to keep a recorder on just for that full time. <laughs> Actually, no, I don't want to. I don't want to hear. Yeah, no, we're not <laughs> listening back to that nonsense. Let's talk about the life cycle of the monster. Well, I think it's going to be very brutal and very much a survival of the fittest scenario. So like that jellyfish, first, it's going to be reborn into a whole bunch of little polyps. I think that the polyps could then attach to the ceiling of the caverns and channels that the party is going to move through and become those venomous tentacles that pull in the slugs to bulk themselves up. Right, because we've talked about like the slugs going somewhere, and that's why the healing waters in our season have stopped producing healing properties. You know, it's kind of the whole hook to our entire story is what happened to the slugs. So now we're suggesting that these tentacles have been consuming them all. Yeah. Then the creature ditches those tentacles and turns into something that looks a little bit more like that six-legged blue lizard. At this stage, they're going to be fairly small, but they're going to be voracious hunters that are going to pursue any prey and are absolutely going to resort to cannibalism pretty dang quickly. And this is where they can start to like consume each other and bolster like the one that eats the next one starts to get more deadly and more strong and more poisonous or what have you yeah i mean depending on how many times you want the party to run into this stage it can be as small as a little chihuahua or it could be as big as a oh yeah <laughs> i like a, where this is what? going yeah um a baby rhino a baby rhino. <laughs> no i mean let's go bigger because yeah. Eventually, what we want it to do is we want it to result in one massive, beastie balrog of a monster. Right. So we're talking full-size rhino at this stage. Uh, bigger. Bigger? Super. Mega rhino. <laughs> Imagine a mega rhino, if you will. And then it becomes mecha rhino. And <laughs> nope. then rhinosaurus. There's no technology in this monster. And then return of the rhinosaurus. <laughs> versus the Balrog with guns. <laughs> Sounds cool as shit. I mean, we've got like 30 sequels to do here <laughs> and they just get flimsier and flimsier with each next one. No, we're going to keep the quality up. Okay, so let's go through the horror stages. Well, we want to keep in mind that the party's goal throughout this entire thing is to escape the abandoned Temple of Trials. And I'd mentioned this kind of concept for the final fight where the different characters are doing different things. Right. So what if we throw in a couple of uh, like optional approaches that they can take that might show up in that final fight? Like, for example, what if the party could collect instructions for an anti-venom throughout the dungeon? 
and then concocted in that final fight. Yeah, that's the whole point here is that we get to slowly understand our enemy while our enemy changes, still like keeping us a little bit on the back foot. But at the same time, our party gets to slowly come to terms with what they're fighting and feel like they are going in as the aggressor at some point, like they will overcome using their abilities, their physical wits, their physical agility, their physical strength to overcome these challenges. And maybe when we're fine tuning this, we can come up with a way that lowers the monster's physical defenses so that it's a really formidable threat all throughout and that you don't need this little key. But if you get it, it makes that final fight a little more approachable. Right. Gives you an edge. I love giving players what they feel like is an edge in a fight because otherwise you kind of, as a player, you get this daunting, like, oh, I think we should go back to town, kind of like we should retreat kind of thing. We want players to feel like they can go into a fight because they're heroes. And the greater the distance between an, a walk in the park and a holy shit we actually won, the more we can make it feel like that end of the spectrum you know, the better those players feel. And another really interesting distinction about that edge and finding it is that the party naturally might say, let's go back to town and get some more weapons or armor or magic items. But if you taunt them and tease them farther in and say the edge is actually hiding closer to the monster, not farther away. Right. Then, you know, the the story continues and the momentum continues. So a major part of the horror steps is establishing what normal is or what that comfort is. We need players to feel comfortable before they can start to notice what's wrong in the next stage in unease. So how do we establish comfort here? Well, this is an ancient place, so I can definitely see the monks creating some massive, impressive works of art here a long time ago, like a fresco that shows the monks tending to these life-giving slugs before there was anything bad here. Well, and we've also got an NPC that is going with them that is the vulnerable NPC that we talked about in a previous episode. So we've got a character that can give and relay some of the history to this place as well. So they could interpret, you know, that fresco and say, you know what, we've lived here for thousands of years Tending to our slugs, but now there's no slugs. So already we know that something is wrong. And then when they encounter that first set of tentacles, they go, well, this wasn't here. <laughs> like this was supposed to be a temple of trials, not a temple of tentacles. That's a good point because there should be an introduction to the actual physical trials, like the original intent of this dungeon because that's going to be the normal that gets thrown into chaos. Right. So now the players have some context to what this place should look like, which means that when they come across unease, our next step, which is the tentacles. And from a gameplay perspective, we're trying to give them a bit of a puzzle to solve here. What immediately jumps to mind here, though, is that we've got the Temple of Trials. It is a puzzle. It is a trial of wits and strength and agility already. And then we add deadly danger <laughs> of tentacles that shouldn't be here. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, like in Indiana Jones, when he has to like reach inside the bug hole and he's got little critters crawling all over and he's got to pull the release thing to stop the, the spikes from crushing him. <laughs> like, that's what I'm thinking. But now instead, there's tentacles in the way. Right. We throw them through a couple of those rooms that are just like, oh, no, the walls are coming in. There is a solution. Right. And then, yeah. OK, this one's got <laughs> this one's got tentacles hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. And then we've got the kid who says these shouldn't be here. I don't know what these are. And then someone like Squib, the the person that acts first and asks questions later, touches one and gets a little bit of venom. Right. And I'm so excited to see how the players would solve this problem. Like, does Squib do the reckless thing and just like cast fireball <laughs> or, you know, does Weld exert themselves into that situation and tell the other two to like back the fuck off? Uh, you don't touch them. Let me 
study them. Yeah. Let me think on this for a moment. Well, this is the way we like to introduce challenges to the party, which is here's the challenge. Come up with a clever solution. Right. Like maybe if I was playing through this, I would throw a bunch of slugs down the corridor to make the tentacles eat those so I can run underneath. So this kind of brings up the other conversation of how do you signal to your players and give them the information that they need to start to solve the problem? Because like you said, showing the tentacles gobble something up, you know, just as the players are going, what is this? Should we touch it? And then all of a sudden it goes, <laughs> okay, now we have that information. Now we can make a more informed choice. Having the players stumble blindly into traps and problems, I never sat right with me. You know, just like then you get into that situation where the party is going down the corridor with a stick poking 20 feet ahead. Right. Square by square for the next six hours of gameplay. Whereas if we give the players some hints and some ideas and what's going on, then they can feel like they're driving the story. Creates a sense of fairness and trust, even though you're playing through this terribly dangerous environment. Right. Yeah, we need to come up. I think as part of this building process, we need to come up with some clues that we can just quickly drop to our players to say like, hey, let's give you a little, you know, if you sit here for too long, then this happens. And then this happens. And like <laughs> now we can start to tease out more information about what's going on. So another standard approach might be trying to hack through them. Maybe they explode in a venomous goo. So that's <laughs> that's a dangerous approach. I love that because like if Eden were to take a big swing, we're going to chew through their sword. <laughs> yeah. We're going to make sure that their sword is unusable and they got to start... Uh, figuring out an improvised weapon until they find something deeper in the cavern. But if they sit there, maybe there's some kind of a weak spot. Maybe there's like a, you know, little air sacs that fill up along these tentacles or something like that. That that those are safe spots to hack it apart. Right. They definitely have to ooze. Yeah. 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 There's tons of ooze. Goopy. <laughs> so our players are going to figure their way through the tentacles. But they're also going to see how the tentacles work, that they're gobbling things up, that maybe they're springing forth from some of the polyps that are all over the cavern. There's a bunch that are unhatched and have not yet turned into tentacles. So now we know that there is something wrong. There is a big problem down here. And now we can jump into that dread stage. Which, if they're paying attention, they might also notice that these tentacles are getting bigger and bigger until they kind of drop off and the main body turns into a little lizard. I like that. I want, I just want a moment where something crawls out of the middle of the tentacles. Oh, okay, okay. Like, just drops down. Like like you were saying, those mana wars are made up of seven other right. types of creatures, basically. So, what if the tentacle, like, after it drops down, the tentacles almost, like, crawl into the cracks in the walls like snakes and it's like well there goes those i don't know if <laughs> those are coming back oh but. i like that <laughs> and you know it makes me think of the jellyfish with like the red core to it in like this translucent body yeah and also going back to the alien egg sack like you remember in alien where they're looking at it and it kind of like wriggles underneath that like semi-translucent yeah i think we need the tentacles to have like a center mass to them where a creature will crawl out, like several will physically crawl out and like you said, scurry into a wall somewhere. <laughs> and you're like, welp, that's there now. I guess we're moving on. Especially if it's got some of those vibrant colors that oh, just signal no. like poison venom. Right, right. <laughs> so we need stealth. This is that possibility to introduce an area of stealth. This is the next stage of dread. Well, at its simplest, I can see just like kind of a massive open chasm that maybe was some of the trials that are collapsed. Yes, like a labyrinth that once existed as like one continuous labyrinth. But now there's so many tentacles on the top of the room that they have like eaten away the acid that they are now aware of has like chewed away and made an unstable labyrinth 
with big sections missing that they have to somehow cross. Meanwhile, the whole thing is starting to come apart and they have to stay quiet as to not arouse the rest of these things that are now hidden in the walls and are falling down everywhere and starting to crowd around because there's motion in here. Right. So how do you how do you showcase that at the beginning? Maybe like one of the larger ones is injured and the party watches as a whole bunch of smaller lizards come out and swarm it and tear it apart and then disappear back into the walls. Perfect. That's so good. (laughs) And now the players know that they have to stay silent. Yeah. And again, each one of the characters is going to have a role to play to get the party across this place effectively, creatively, and most importantly, silently. Yeah. (laughs) So the party gets through this stealth scene, and then we have to move on to terror, which the next form of these monsters is really just bigger lizards as they're starting to consume each other, and they're starting to get more potent venom. And for this, we need a chase from a gameplay perspective. Well, so just to be clear, you're thinking... Every single time one of these, you know, survival of the fittest things, not only do they consume each other, but they kind of like that little weird tentacled fingered thing. They get more and more potent and also larger. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're bulking up physically and venomously. Got it. With each meal they sup upon. You made that weird at the end. (laughs) Thanks. So we're still working with this backdrop of these original trials. I think those could provide a really cool series of obstacles for this chase. So I can see at the end of this stealth session, the party either knocks something loose or like a big boulder falls as a result of their actions and just this boom. Right. So then we're going to engage the party with a chase that's the bigger version of these monsters They're just going to start pouring out and you're going to have no choice but to start moving forward. And I think the obstacles that the party can encounter during this chase is going to be represented by that backdrop that we have of the Temple of Trials. It's going to be those physical challenges that now the party is just like racing through. Like, get. (laughs) (laughs) I love that because, I mean, it so beautifully mirrors their experience from the very beginning of this like really ancient, humble, holy, divine place. Like, they have so much respect for it. It's been here for thousands of years, and now it's just like, holy shit, we need to bash our way through it. (laughs) And what a great way of leaning into some of the abilities of our players. Because, like, you've got Eden, who's the frontliner, who could absolutely just be making some kind of uh, strength ability check to just bash their way through some intricate door lock or something like <laughs> it was meant to be a mind puzzle yeah and they're just smashing their way through it and what a great feeling that is as the frontliner character to just use your strength and be the hero yeah absolutely but the ones that eden's not getting squibs throwing what's left of their magical arsenal at the challenges right Fireball is a great application here, or even just to keep the chase at bay. You know, they could be laying down spells as they're running to give the team more time. And then you've got Weld, who is carefully thinking their way through and trying to direct in the chaos and saying, hey, I think we should go this way. Yeah. So we're when we build this encounter, we're going to need to accommodate all of those things. We're going to need to give little clues for people like our weld to say that this might be the better direction. And and it's a, uh, you know, some kind of mental role or wisdom role or something like that that allows them to deduce this is going to be the quicker path within that chase scene. Or you're just simply peppering in details as you describe the different areas they're running through. Like, what just comes to my mind is is like maybe there's a channel straight up with a, a bucket and a rope tied. And it's like, okay, everyone jump in the bucket. We <laughs> clip the rope and we go rocketing up. Who cares what's up there? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and I love that too, is that we could add a lot of leaps of faith. Yeah. And, you know, capitalize on that desperation 
to what we know is going to be a terrible fight if we stop. Oh, totally. You could do things like I, I love the leap of faith concept because they could go over waterfalls and into dark chasms and like whatever. <laughs> Just may always make it this veil of what's on the other side of their next very poor decision. Yes. Then we need to get into the horror. And this is that final stage, the form of a monstrous, huge boss monster. The scene that we're really trying to do here is some kind of crazy elaborate combat. This is going toe to toe with the thing that these things have finally become. And your terror stage often flows right into the horror. So I love the idea of you're, you're in the middle of this chase. You got this army behind you that all of a sudden branches off as you hear the deep rumble ahead of you that you're sprinting right into. The Balrog moment <laughs> is yeah, so perfect. Exactly. Especially if a good chunk of those pursuing monsters get devoured by this thing yeah. and it grows right in front of the player's eyes. Totally. That's the kind of signal that we need to give to the players to let them know how this monster functions if they haven't figured it out already. That's good. Maybe the party's chase has funneled a stream of these monsters right into the boss's throat. Like it's just <laughs> gobbling them up. And that's why it gets so big so fast. I love it. Yeah. And I think at this point, this is where we can finally introduce, say, our villain. You know, we could have quite a climactic showdown. Maybe the party um, half beats this monster here and it retreats and it comes back later on when it's time to face off with the villain to make an incredibly chaotic shit show of a final combat where you're trying to deal with a villain, you're trying to deal with a monster that keeps growing every time it gets itself next to some tinier ones so it's replenishing its health while you're trying to fight it. Like This could be chaos, and it could be so much fun in this final showdown. And you make an interesting point there because you could beat this monster and still have it show up in the villain fight. Right. You could absolutely kill this one, but there's still hundreds more. Right. That's a good point. Oh, man, the players won't see that one coming. <laughs> or they absolutely will. We'll or see. they will. <laughs> Either way, we're going to do it. And I do want to state that we will most likely be building, well, we absolutely have to, I think, build the encounter as an episode of our final boss fight, right? Oh, absolutely. So... You've got that to look forward to in the next, you know, before the end of this season. We will build this encounter out into all of its stages using our encounter planner that you can find on our. We actually have a really cool desk mat sitting right in front of me, actually, uh, that I've been using for quite some time. And I absolutely love it. But it has all of those horror steps. It has the encounter planning on it that allows me to just plan at a glance. I know that your brain is already brimming with different things that you could pack into an encounter, you know, a boss battle encounter like that. Yeah, because at the beginning I'd mentioned maybe there's some kind of anti-venom, so like maybe a series of clues throughout this dungeon that leads up to a character like Weld putting it together right there in front of the boss because the final ingredient was a part of the boss. Oh, shit. Right. And now they're finding ways to have the damage that they get from the poison that this thing is spewing. And and maybe throughout their adventure, they figured out that there's a brief window of vulnerability when one of these monsters consumes another one. So all of a sudden, maybe Squib is just tossing smaller ones into its mouth trying to get this window of vulnerability to show up. Right. right. They're doing, if they can figure that out at some point during yeah. this, uh, this whole encounter with these monsters, now all of a sudden they know that it takes double damage when it's having just consumed another creature. Or the players figure out that, hey, we can actually use this monster to our advantage against the villain because yeah. they're not immune to the venom, but we are. It's important to consider both your own ideas as the GM as to what they could do to overcome it, but also to remain flexible throughout this adventure and pay attention to the creative solutions that the players are coming up with. Because there's no reason you can't fold those into that final fight, too. And that's why we really enjoy adding three little clues of things that we can drop into a scene, whether it's the hint of poison or if it's the 
you know, creature getting larger or all of those allow our players to just sit there and think about how they could use it to their advantage in the case of poison, let's say, you know, they're going to see that. And the first thing that they're going to think of is how can I use that to my advantage? Whatever they come up with, I can probably adapt my idea too. Yeah. So our next step is really to find a monster stat block to reskin for each stage of its life cycle. We don't have to delve into mechanics necessarily. We can swap out a couple of abilities and we're off to the races. And in a situation like this, it's really not about if they can kill each monster or not. It's about them overcoming the challenge. It's about them accomplishing the goals within these scenes. Right. So what should we name this monster? I think that's a question that only, you know, Jordan and I can't necessarily answer. Uh, you could, though. You could join our Patreon. The Juicy Venom Ball. <laughs> I, I don't like that name. That's not a good name. Should we get help? Yes, we should get help. <laughs> you suck at this. Join our Patreon and you can join some of our sessions where we are building out these ideas and concepts. Uh, you could also let us know via comment or email or simply hopping into our Discord. What would you change in some of these stages? How would you approach some of the stages that we talked about? Or what kind of diabolical ideas did you come up with as you were listening to this episode? We would love to hear them. We would love to collaborate with you. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode, but also a huge, huge thank you to the wonderful patrons that keep this show going, like Inigo the Brave, David P, Adam F, Alex R, Steve A, Sigma, Kaleidoscope, Skylar E, Deadman, Ninja Ducky, Sue Art, Blackthorn, First Law, Peacock Dreams, DM Thunderbomb, Marley R, Time Warp, Dangerous Marmalade, Zach G, No Ma'am, Michelle T, Adlerius, Chris F. The Senate. Lucas D. Lila G. The GM Tim. Nevermore. Thomas W. DM Nasky. Heavy Arms. Leprechaun. And Will HP. You could almost say they're a combination of different life forms that makes up a terrifying beast that produces this podcast. <laughs> I love that. The, just <laughs> the hive mind. The terrible, ingenious hive mind. Exactly. You can find any of the resources that we mentioned free at our website, hookandchance.com. Uh, we would love if you shared this episode and content with anyone else that you know that's working on a monster. Yeah. You know, one of your GM buddies is saying, oh, I'm really struggling with coming up with this uh, scary stuff for my players. <laughs> is that what they sound like? <laughs> yeah, this stuff's real tricky. You can join in that awesome community of players and DMs on our Discord. We would love for you to come and join us there chat with us uh and let's hear your ideas my brain meat's just running on real dry i got <laughs> nothing in the tank Please, i'm cutting if you, you off just have a podcast episode thanks to tabletop audio for the sound effects that you heard in this episode that might have what i need to make this session good please friend thanks you for listening and play to great games anything i'll take any episode of any podcast please Thank <laughs> you.